Romans 4. Here we go. I'm going to start at verse 1. I'm going to be in the Passion Translations. I don't have notes today on purpose because this is something the Lord kind of shifted in me last minute. So uh, we'll either be real short or not. So we'll see. Uh, Romans 4. Romans 4. Uh, let me, and, and I'm, I'm going to say this too. This is something that, um, a, that I've, a couple of spiritual fathers have really been drilling into a lot of people lately that I've been studying. I haven't really planned on teaching it. And then Tuesday night at group, and if y'all don't come on Tuesday nights, Tuesday nights have been amazing. Um, one of my favorite nights of the week. But uh, Tuesday night, we just kind of out of nowhere kind of went into this, and I thought it's, it's something we definitely need to teach. So today what I'm ultimately going to talk about is the church and why the church is important and why we need to honor the church, etc. But I want to start here. It's not going to make sense until we get there, but y'all just trust me. So here we go. Romans 4, verse 1. This is Paul writing. Let me use Abraham as an example. It is clear that, humanly speaking, he was the founder of Judaism. What was his experience of being made right with God? Was it by his good works of keeping the law? No. For if it was by the things he did, he would have something to boast about, but no one boasts before God. Let me read that again. It's good. Was it him being made right with God? Was it by his good works of keeping the law? No. For if it was by the things he did, he would have something to boast about, but no one boasts before God. Listen to what Scripture says. Because Abraham believed God's words, his faith transferred God's righteousness to him or into his account. I don't necessarily like that translation, but to him. Verse 4. When people work, they earn wages. It, listen to this. When people work, they earn wages. It cannot be considered a free gift because they earned it. Okay? But no one earns God's righteousness. It can only be transferred when we no longer rely on our own works, but believe in the one who powerfully declares the ungodly to be righteous in his eyes. Do you, is that, that's good. One more time. One more time. I'm not in a hurry today. But no one earns God's righteousness. You might need to put that on a sticky note in your car. No one earns God's righteousness, so you can stop trying to earn it. It can only be transferred when we no longer rely on our own works, but believe in the one who powerfully declares the ungodly to be righteous in his eyes. It is by faith, excuse me, it is faith that transfers God's righteousness into your account. I just Can I just stop right here? Listen, no one can earn God's righteousness it can only be transferred when? When? When we stop relying on our own works. I think a lot of people have failed to realize the righteousness declared over their lives, not because it hasn't been declared over their lives, but because they're still relying on their own works to be righteous. And Paul says the only time that you can receive the declaration of righteousness is when you stop trying to rely on your own works to get you into the declaration of righteousness. That's amazing. So Paul is saying the antithesis of what most of us are being, or well, not today, but have been taught. He's saying the complete antithesis to Western evangelical Christianity. Western evangelical Christianity says you earn righteousness by what you do. 
Paul says you cannot possibly hear the declaration of righteousness until you stop trying to do something to get it. Okay, so good. It is by faith, or it is faith, that transfers God's righteousness into your account. Now, here's where it gets awesome. Even King David himself speaks to us regarding the complete wholeness. Complete wholeness that comes inside a person when God's powerful declaration of righteousness is heard over our lives. Apart from our works, God's work is enough. Here's what David says. I'm going to back up there in a minute. What happy fulfillment is ahead for those whose rebellion has been forgiven and whose sins are covered by blood. And I said this Tuesday night, I totally ripped this off, but it's good, that David's sins was, they were covered by blood from the sacrifice. Our sins aren't covered by blood. Our sins are annihilated by blood. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So, but David's saying this in the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament. This is David. He says, what happy fulfillment, fulfillment, fulfillment is ahead for those whose rebellion has been forgiven, whose sins are covered by blood. What happy progress comes to them when they hear the Lord speak over them. This is the Old Testament. When the Lord speaks over them, I will never hold your sins against you. Amazing. Now, verse 9. Think about it. Does this happiness come only to the Jews or is it available to all who believe? Our answer is this. Faith was credited to Abraham as God's righteousness. How did he receive the gift of righteousness? Was he circumcised at the time God accepted him or was he still uncircumcised? Clearly, he was an uncircumcised Gentile when God said this of him. It was later that he received the external sign of circumcision as a seal to confirm what God had already spoken or transferred his righteousness to him by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So now this qualifies him to become the father of all who believe among the non-Jewish people. And like their father of faith, Abraham, God also transfers his righteousness to them by faith. That's you and I, Gentiles. Yes, Abraham is obviously the true father of the faith for the Jewish people who are not only circumcised, but who walk in the way of faith that our father Abraham displayed before his circumcision. Verse 13, God promised Abraham and his descendants that they would have an heir who would reign over the world. This royal promise was not fulfilled because Abraham kept all the law. But through the righteousness that was transferred by faith. For if, listen, for if keeping the law earns the inheritance, then faith is robbed of its power and the promise is useless. For the law provokes punishment. And where no law exists, there cannot be a violation of the law. This is huge. The promise depends on faith so that it can be experienced as a grace gift and now it extends to all the descendants of Abraham who are Jews and Gentiles alike. This promise is not only meant for those who obey the law but also to those who enter into the faith of Abraham, the father of us all. 
That's what the scripture means when it says, I have made you, Abraham, the father of many nations. He is our example and father, for in God's presence he believed that God can raise the dead, this is pointing back to Isaac last week, and call into being things that don't even exist yet. One more time, one more time, one more time. He is our example and father. In God's presence, the Hebrew doesn't have a word for presence. 100% of the time, it's the word face. There is no Hebrew word for presence, okay? So Romans, Paul is pointing back to a story in the book of Hebrews that I mentioned last week, Genesis 22. He is our father, or excuse me, example and father, for in God's presence, or in the presence of God's face, he believed that God can raise the dead and call into being things that do not even exist yet. Against all odds, when it looked hopeless, Abraham believed the promise and expected God to fulfill it. He took God at his word, and as a result, he became the father of many nations, which is the promise of God. God's declaration over him came to pass. Your descendants will be so many that they will be impossible to count. In spite of being nearly 100 years old, when the promise of having a son was made, his faith was so strong that it could not be undermined by the fact that he and Sarah were incapable of conceiving a child. Are y'all, this is, are y'all hearing this? This is amazing. I mean, I could, I, as I'm reading this, I'm like, I need to stop there, I need to stop there, I need to stop there, but we'll be here all day. But what Paul is saying... In spite of being nearly 100 years old, when the promise of having a son was made, his faith was so strong, it could not be undermined by the fact that he and Sarah were incapable of conceiving a child. God promised them a son, and even though him and Sarah were so old, it was impossible for them to conceive a son. That did not undermine Abraham's belief in the word of the Lord. We will back off believing the word of the Lord if it takes too long. You know what I'm saying? This is Abraham 25 years later until he is 25 years until he's holding Isaac in his hands. 25 years. And it says Abraham's faith could not be undermined by the fact that everything in the natural seemed absolutely absurd. Do you know I mean th- this is the stuff that this church is made out of. You know what I'm saying? How do you rec- how do you reconcile the fact that God has promised global takeover I mean, whatever you want to call it. Global transformation. All right? How do you reconcile that with a room full of 15, 20 people? How do you do that? Faith. It's My faith in the promise of God is not undermined by what I see being in the eyes of everybody else around me impossible. You know what I mean? So I show up here today and teach you guys, not just to teach you guys, but to teach on behalf of those who are going to be here 100, 200, and 300 years down the road when we and the kingdom of God is flooding the earth as the waters cover the sea. But it's got to take a group of people who are willing to see things as the Lord said rather than as they see them right now in front of them. I take things and move things, not perfectly, Lord. But I try my best to take things and move on the word of the Lord, not by what I see. Right? Because if I've moved by what I see, we would have quit years ago. You know? I mean, years ago. 
when, when everybody, we would have quit. But I'm not here because everybody left or everybody stayed. I'm here because of a word of the Lord. So if it's just me and my wife and a couple of y'all in the room, that's all I need. In fact, I don't even necessarily need that to believe what the Lord spoke to me. Do you see what I'm saying? Okay, so this is really good. He never, verse 20, he never stopped believing God's promise for he was made strong in his faith to father a child. He never stopped believing. He was made strong in his faith to father a child. And because he was mighty in faith and convinced that God had all the power needed to fulfill his promises, Abraham glorified God. When? When he had to wait 25 years. It says that his faith was strengthened. Every year that went by and God did not fulfill his promise, he believed it even more. I, you know what I'm saying? See, we don't, we don't teach this stuff today. Every year that went by, he was more convinced that what God said was going to come to pass. So now you can see why Abraham's faith was credited to his account as righteousness before God. And this declaration was not just spoken over Abraham, but also over us. For when we believe and embrace the one who brought our Lord Jesus back to life, perfect righteousness will be credited to us as well. Jesus was handed over to be crucified for the forgiveness of our sins and was raised back to life to prove that he had made us right with God. Past tense. One more time. Jesus was handed over to be crucified for the forgiveness of our sins and was raised back to life to prove that he had made us right with God. Not will had. So, let's back up. Let me write this out. Here's, the, here's, here's what Abraham is saying. Let me use black today. If I can get it out of my little slot. There we go. All right. So, here's what Abraham's saying. Uh, I'm going to just write Romans 4 so y'all know what I'm talking about. Romans 4. Okay. In, in verse 6, he says, David speaks himself, speaks to us regarding the complete wholeness that comes inside a person when God's powerful declaration of righteousness is heard over our lives. What does he say in the beginning of chapter 4? The way to hear the declaration of righteousness spoken over your life is to stop working. So, here's how it works. You're convinced. So you stop earning And this, I'm going to put 1A, okay? The declaration of righteousness is spoken over you. Give me a second. It's a long, long word. If I misspell something, y'all don't judge me. All right. So this happens almost simultaneously, but you have to stop working and earning it first. Your ears cannot be open to hearing the declaration that's spoken over you day in and day out until you stop trying to declare it over yourself by your works. Okay? So it's not that this comes by way of you stop you not working. It's that you can't hear this until you unclog your ears with your works. You see what I'm saying? So when you try to earn your righteousness, you're doing this, blah, 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 blah. As, you know what I'm saying? As the Lord is trying to say, you're the righteousness of God. You're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You're the right. Nope, 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 nope. I've got to earn it. I've got to earn it. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. Religion said I've got to do this. I've got to serve. I've got to type, right? And so what you do is when you stop trying to earn righteousness, 
you remove the plugs from your ears and you can hear the whisper, you're righteous. Okay? So this is step one. I'm going to put this together because they go together. All right. Step two, you ready? This is, this is major. This is major. The declaration of righteousness is heard over your life. Step two, complete wholeness. Step one, the declaration of righteousness is heard over your life. Step two, you are completely whole. You start there. That's where you start. There isn't a process of you doing this and this and this and this and this and this, and then you're whole. This is what we, this is what we think. I'm not going to erase this. I want this. This is what we think. I'll do it down here. We think, and if you were here Tuesday, this is a little bit of a review. Okay. So we think, let's say this is heaven or dead. <laughs> okay, dead, I mean like dead in our terms. Okay, so what we believe is, if you can't see this, I'm sorry. What we believe is this is when you repeat a prayer, do whatever you got to do. Do a jig, spin around, clap three times. All right, so you repeat a prayer, and now you're not really saved, okay? You go to heaven when you die. But heaven, we believe, in the West, is when you're whole. You are completely whole when you die. So your entire life, you're trying to do good works to earn your place into complete wholeness when you die. Which means that death, excuse me, death is salvation. Right? That's, I mean, really, that's what this means. Is death is salvation and you spend your entire life trying to be absolutely perfect so that one day you can be whole, right? And so we'll go through things like anxiety and depression and uh, suicidal thoughts and disorders and uh, thoughts about other people and looking at things we shouldn't look at and all this other stuff. We'll go through all of that and we'll see that as us being broken, but I'm still in the process and I won't be whole until I die and go to heaven. This is what we teach, right? How many of you think that if you sat down in a session with a counselor or whatever, and you're struggling with looking at pornography, and you sit down with them and you say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with looking at pornography. This is a really big thing for me. Can you help me? How many of you believe that the first thing that person's going to say is, well, the number one thing you've got to believe is that you're actually completely whole? No. No, 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 no. Heck no. That's edited. <laughs> no. Here's what they're going to tell you. Well, you need to get you a sight block if they're Christians, um, which I've always thought it was really interesting when uh, pastors try to counsel way outside of their, um, outside of their uh, what, the degrees. But anyway, um, which is where we're getting to a lot of mess too. But You'll, you, this is what you, well, you need to get you some sight blockers. You need to get you some accountability partners. You need to get you uh, somebody that, what's that thing um, that, where you can download the app on somebody else's phone and every website you go to every week, it sends them like every website you've been to, et cetera. Like there's not a way around that. You know what I'm saying? And so anyway, and if you do that and you do it the rest of your life and you get absolutely perfect at saying no to that thing, then one day you're going to be with Jesus and he's going to take all the temptation away and you're going to be absolutely whole. Right? No. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Here is what Paul says. 
The declaration of righteousness is heard over your life. When does that happen? If you go to the end of Romans 4, this is what he says. Jesus was handed over to be crucified and was raised back to life to prove that he had made us right with God. To prove that he had made us right with God. So here's what happens. You start whole. And the rest of your life, do you know what you're doing? You're living out wholeness. So you don't become whole when you're dead. You become whole when the declaration of righteousness is heard over your life. When was the declaration of righteousness heard over your life? When Christ was raised from the dead. So, here's the issue. Because you say, well, Josh, if that's the case, then why is there all this brokenness in the world? You can be, as proven, I, I could be case study number one, you can be completely whole and live like you're completely broken. That's the issue. Is that we have a group of people in the world that believe in Jesus, but also believe what Augustine said, which is their snow-covered dung. This is what St. Augustine, the blessed father of the West, said over us. You are nothing but snow-covered dung, and this is where we get Calvinism. That's why if you get around a Calvinist, they're always mad. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I don't apologize for that. It's just true. Right? You get around a Pentecostal, they don't know three things about theology, but at least they're happy. You know what I mean? Um, I can say that because I grew up Pentecostal. So, you, you know what I mean? If you ask them one thing about theology, it's like, brother, just believe. Like, All right, cool. I'll take that. So, we start whole. So, the issue for us is not earning our place into wholeness. The issue for us is just being convinced that we're actually whole despite anything we've ever done. And that's so much harder than earning your way into wholeness. It's way easier for me to spend every day of my life trudging through to prove that I'm worth the declaration of righteousness. It's way easier to do that than it is to every day of my life wake up and say I'm whole. Why? Because he said. So, I mean, so this is huge. This is huge. So this is what he says. He says, um... Wrong marker. Your, the declaration of righteousness is heard over your life. Complete wholeness comes into your being, right? Apart from our works, God's work is enough. And then this is what David says. David says, What happy fulfillment is ahead for those whose rebellion has been forgiven and sins are obliterated by blood. Okay? So then you get happy fulfillment... Okay, and then, check this out. This is good. What happy progress comes to them when they hear the Lord speak over them, I will never hold your sins against you. Then, you get happy progress. Does anybody see anything wrong with this list? We said progress was number one and what everything flows out of. Paul says that progress is a fruit of you being convinced of the declaration heard over your life that you're righteous, right? So it is illegal for you to think that you're going to process or progress your way into righteousness. You're not. You're not. 
You're righteous because he said you're righteous. The only way you can hear the declaration of righteousness over your life is if you believe progress is the last thing you do as a fruit of being righteous. So we're progressing into being convinced of our wholeness. We're not progressing into being whole. Is this, is this good? Is this too much? Right? So this means, and this is what I'm about to get into, but I really don't want to rush through Romans 4 because it was, it was really good. Why was Abraham year in and year out more convinced of the promise of God over his life, even though what he saw in front of him did not look like anything the Lord had said? Right, because Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, which brought him wholeness, which brought him fulfillment. I believe if, you went to Ab- if God went to Abraham, which is why in Genesis 22, that's such an amazing story. But I believe if you went to Abraham and God said, after all those years, you know what? I changed my mind. I'm actually not going to give you Isaac, but I'll do everything I need to do through Ishmael. I believe Abraham would have been in a place where he said, yes, sir. So he heard the declaration of righteousness. He was completely whole. He was happily fulfilled. And then from that came the progress. This is how you, so so if you look at the story of Abraham, there's one issue with how the New Testament talks about Abraham. The New Testament says that Abraham, and this is in Hebrews uh, 10 and 11, that Abraham did not waver in his faith. There's one problem, which is Genesis 16, where Abraham, or Abram at the time, and Sarah get together and say, we need to give a son to this family, so you go sleep with the slave, Hagar. The New Testament looks at Abraham and says he never wavered in his faith to have a son, but believed God's promise. If you go in the Old Testament, Abraham sleeps with an Egyptian slave because Sarah thinks this isn't going to work out. Okay? How do you marry those? It's because Abraham's righteousness was not based on his progress. Abraham's righteousness was based on the declaration spoken over Abraham. So the Hagar scenario and the Ishmael scenario was us seeing Abraham progressing in what Genesis 15 said, which was Abraham believed and was transferred, credited to him as righteousness. So in Genesis 15, Abraham is declared righteous. In Genesis 16, Abraham sleeps with a slave girl named Hagar. Do you see this? So he never wavered in his faith Because he still believed in the declaration of righteousness, even though he was still progressing in it. I see your brains. Right? How how does Paul in the New Testament say, I have wronged no man? What about all those people you killed? Do you know what I'm saying? Paul says, I have wronged no man. Huh? Huh? Right? Because he's seeing himself through the declaration of righteousness spoken over him, not through his progress. 
Do you see this? And so you being where you are today in your faith is not an issue of you growing into righteousness or you earning your righteousness or you earning your identity. It's an issue of you simply being convinced of your righteousness. So the Lord will process us not to take us to a place where we are perfect or righteous, but to take us to a place where we actually believe that we're perfect or righteous that was spoken over us before we were ever born. Okay, okay, okay. Now, let's go to uh, Hebrews 10, and I'm going to bring this to, uh, bring this home a little bit. So Hebrews 10, Hebrews 10, and uh, y'all just keep this on your mind as I read through this. Hebrews 10, Passion Translation, hopefully you guys are there uh, by now, if I can hold on to my marker. Hebrews 10, the old system of living under the law presented us with only a faint shadow, a crude outline of the reality of the wonderful blessings to come. Even with its steady stream of sacrifices offered year after year, there was still nothing that could make our hearts perfect before God. For if animal sacrifices could once and for all eliminate our sin, they would have ceased to be offered and worshipers would have been, excuse me, and the worshipers would have clean consciousness. Instead, once was not enough, so by the repetitive sacrifices year after year, the worshipers were continually reminded of their sins with their hearts still impure. This is, okay. Instead, once was not enough, so by the repetitive sacrifices year after year, the worshipers were continually reminded of their sins with their hearts still impure. See, that's what we do right? We continually remind people of their sins, which keeps our hearts impure, rather than reminding people of the declaration that's spoken over him. So by continually reminding people of who they are not, we're actually now going against the good news of the gospel, which is you are right because of what happened on the cross and what happened in the grave. So the cross of Jesus did not make a way for us to keep another law better because it's bloody. The death and resurrection of Jesus made a way for us to actually and finally be convinced of what we should have been convinced all along, which is we are right with God because we're in the image and likeness of God. We're right with God because God said so. Okay. For what power does the blood of bulls and goats have to remove sin's guilt? Lord, help me not chase a rabbit, but I might. It feels right. In the Old Testament, Leviticus 16, and I, this is fresh because I just wrote a whole chapter on this last week. So uh, Leviticus 16, you don't have to turn there. You can go study this later. There is a lot of bloodshed in Leviticus 16. If you go back and read it, there's a ton of bloodshed. And none of the bloodshed has to do with forgiving the worshiper's sins. If you go read Leviticus 16, they are to slaughter bulls and goats and rams, and they're doing all of this, and every time Aaron, the priest, is going in and he's sprinkling it on the cover of the atonement um, uh, where, the ark, where, Jesus was enthroned, where, Jesus, where God was enthroned. He's sprinkling the blood there, and he's cleansing the temple, and he's cleansing the most holy place. So what is he doing? He's cleansing the place of worship from the staining of people that were living in a loss of identity sin. So the blood was to purify or cleanse the place of worship. But then something interesting happens in Leviticus 16. There are two goats present. One of those will be slaughtered to cleanse the temple. The other would be what's called a scapegoat. 
So after they cleansed the place of worship, Aaron, Aaron would bring the scapegoat that was chosen by a casting of lots. He would bring the scapegoat. He would place both hands on the head of this scapegoat, and he would confess all the sins of the Israelite community over this goat. And the Lord said, when this happens, the goat will take the burden of their sins on himself. And do you know what they did with the goat? They drove him into the wilderness. Let's say it like this. They cast him as far as the east is from the west. The blood that was shed was not to remove the guilt of sin from the worshipers. It was to cleanse the place of worship. The scapegoat is what removed the burden of sins from the people. So Jesus... Blood that was shed, it's illegal for us to speak of the blood as the blood being what forgave us. The blood that was shed was to cleanse the earthly temple so that it could be purified for worship again. What happens after Jesus dies? It is finished and the veil is torn in the temple. What does that signify? That the spirit that was once contained in a temple is now contained in the globe. So the blood of Jesus cleanses the earthly temple for worship and for him to dwell and remain. And then Jesus takes on himself the guilty conscience and says, it is finished. There's Leviticus 101. Okay, here we go. So when Jesus, the Messiah, came into the world, he said, Since your ultimate desire was not another animal sacrifice, you have clothed me with a body that I may offer myself instead. Multiple burnt offerings and sin offerings cannot satisfy your justice. So I said to you, God, I will be the one to go and do your will and fulfill all that is written of me in your word. Or in the scroll of the book is another translation. First... <clears throat> he said multiple burnt offerings and sin offerings cannot satisfy your justice, even though the law required them to be offered. And then he said, God, I will be the one to go and do your will. So by being the sacrifice that removes sin, there it is, he abolishes animal sacrifices and replaces the entire system with a new covenant. By God's will, by God's will, we have now been purified and made holy once and for all through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus the Messiah. I'm almost done. Y'all just hang with me. Yet, even though that's happened, every day, priests still serve ritually offering the same sacrifices again and again. Sacrifices that can never take away sin's guilt. If you notice this, the language that the writer of Hebrews is using, and the more I study this, like I said a few weeks ago, the more I'm realizing was probably Paul. But the writer of Hebrews, the language he's using is stuff like this. Could take away sin's guilt or a guilty conscience. Do you see this? Yet every day priests still serve, ritually offering the same sacrifices again and again. Sacrifices that can never take away sin's guilt. God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. How many of y'all didn't? I'm sorry, I'll never do that again. I'll never do it again. I'll never do that again. I'll never do that. Lord, I'm so sorry. We'll find the psalm. We'll find, this is what I used to do as a kid when I felt bad about myself. I'd go find the psalm that uh, David wrote when he had slept with Bathsheba. 
right? And I would read that, and Lord, I, pro- I promise I'll never tell a lie again. I promise, just forgive me. If the rapture comes, take me, you know, all that other junk. And I would say that over and over, Lord, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And day after day, I would offer the same sacrifice again and again and again that never took away sin's guilt. Because I would leave that carrying the guilty conscience with me, and that's what drove me to try to be morally and karma perfect. You know what I'm saying? I didn't believe in the declaration of righteousness. I believed in the Buddhist idea of karma and called it God. I believed that everything that I did determined everything that he did, which really makes me Lord and makes me Savior. Like God doing something in the earth is determined on whether or not we act right. No, God doing something in the earth is strictly determined by us believing we are right despite what we have done in our past. Y'all good? So, Day in and day out, priest, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a primarily Jewish audience. And what he's saying is, is Jesus has come to do away with that old system, but there are still priests to this day that offer sacrifices of the old system day in and day out, and it does nothing. Okay? But, verse 12, when the priest had offered the one supreme sacrifice for sin, he's, the priest in, is talking about Jesus, supreme sacrifice for sin for all time, He sat down on the throne at the right hand of God, waiting until all his whispering enemies are subdued and turned into his footstool. And by his one perfect sacrifice, he made us perfectly holy and complete for all time. By his one perfect sacrifice, he made us holy and complete for all time. The Holy Spirit confirms this to us by the scripture. For the Lord says, afterwards, I will give them this covenant. I will embed my laws into their hearts and fasten my word to their thoughts. And then he says, I will not even remember their sins and lawless deeds. Now, he doesn't say, I will do away with them or obliterate them. Now he says, I won't even remember they happened. Okay. So if our sins have been forgiven and forgotten, why would we ever need to offer another sacrifice for sin? Last part, last part. And now we are brothers and sisters, is what I came to talk about today, in God's family because of the blood of Jesus. We are brothers and sisters in God's family because of the blood of Jesus right? Our blood is his blood. We bleed the same. And he welcomes us in to come into the most holy sanctuary in the heavenly realm, boldly and without hesitation. For he has dedicated a new life-giving way for us to approach God. For just as the veil was torn in two, Jesus' body was torn open to give us free and fresh access to him. And since we now have a magnificent high priest to welcome us into God's house, we come closer to God and approach him with an open heart, fully convinced that nothing will keep us at a distance from him. For our hearts have been sprinkled with blood to remove impurity, and we have been uh, freed from an accusing conscience. Right? That's amazing language. What does the New Testament call the body of Christ? A temple for God. So this is, do you see how this is, see, if you don't know a lot about the Old Testament, you miss a lot of this stuff that's connecting it. Our hearts have been sprinkled with blood to remove impurity. Why? Because God intends to live in the temple of our bodies. 
And when we have been freed from an accusing conscience, now we are clean, unstained, presentable to God inside and out. Last couple of verses. So now, wrap your heart tightly around the hope that lives in us, knowing that God always keeps his promise. There you go, Abraham. Discover creative ways to encourage each other, to motivate each other towards act of compassion, doing beautiful works as an expression of love. Doing beautiful works as expressions of love. This is not the time. Last verse. This is not the time to pull away and neglect. To pull away and neglect. The word neglect there is actually in the Greek, abandon. So this is not the time to pull away and abandon meeting together as some have formed the habit of doing. In fact, we should come together even more frequently, eager to encourage and urge each other onward as we anticipate that day dawning. Whew! Good? All right, so what is Hebrews? In Hebrews 10, the writer is simply reiterating this. This is the standard. This is it. That God's declaration of righteousness is heard over you, that you are completely whole, that happy fulfillment begins to flood your being under the reality of wholeness, and as happy fulfillment and wholeness begin to reign in your life, suddenly you find yourself in happy progress. Progress flows from wholeness. Wholeness is not a result of progress. Good? So how do we, though, let me ask you this. How did we get convinced otherwise? Like, how, how are, this, this kind of sounds foreign to us, if we're being honest. Like, this sounds like brand new teaching. This is like, Josh, I don't, man, I don't know about, I've never heard anything like that. Exactly. Why is that? It's because growing up, we didn't have social media, and we didn't have the, well, I didn't have social media. I didn't have internet. In fact, it wasn't until I think I was in middle school when we got Walmart dial-up internet. It was like a little CD you could buy at Walmart, and you put it in your computer, and that like gave you internet through the phone. And so that was the ones like, you know, like that one. Um, do, anybody, do y'all know what dial-up is? Like some of y'all? Okay, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, yeah, you guys know. So you guys don't know, do you? Y'all don't know what dial-up is. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, this is back when I had a Nokia phone that had snake on it. We didn't have social media, all that stuff. So, before this, though, when I was a kid, we didn't have all of these, let's call them distractions. And so, do you know what my parents did week in and week out? They drug me to church. That's, that's what you did. You know what I'm saying? If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to church. If I was sick, you especially went to church. You know what I'm saying? Like, I would try to do the thing in the morning while I wake up, like, man, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not feeling too good. And be like, well, you, you really better get your clothes. We're going to church. We're going to get Sister Mildred, because she used to pray. We're going to get Sister Mildred to lay, and she would. Sister Mildred, I'll never forget her. Um, I was, and listen, you talk about anointing. This lady, I don't know what she did. But she sat, you remember on the, do you, uh, what's it called? Uh, is it, do you remember whatever, the, but the uh, communion tables? What does it say? Something about remember. Um, in remembrance of me. Yeah, the communion. Okay. Um, <laughs> so they would have the table. So I went through a year of just having awful stomach issues, just awful stomach issues. And so we went into church one day and Sister Mildred, she got me. I'll never, somehow I remember this. I was like four years old. Okay. And I can vividly remember this. So this tells you like, 
She got me. She lifted me up. She sat me on the table. She got some anointing oil, except back then it was like a huge bottle, a huge bottle of anointing oil. And um, she, I mean, it was just like, I mean, just lathered. And was just like, and you know, the older people used to do this. So back when I was a kid and to this day, I always had my hair slicked back. Like, I just like, I just like to have like good looking hair, you know, when I was a kid. And I, I kid you not, every time in my church somebody prayed over me, it would be like in Jesus' name and just like, rub, and I'm like, why? Like, why do you got to mess up my hair? You know what I'm saying? And um, so she did that. She was just rubbing it all over. And she looked at me. I'll never forget. And she said, you will go home today and have a normal bowel movement. That's what she said. That's what she said. And I, as God as my witness, went home that day and have been completely whole ever since. I, I kid you not, but that, that was, that's how we grew up. You know what I'm saying? Like it wasn't even, we, we had no option. You know what I'm saying? And so we got convinced of a lot of great things, but we got convinced of a lot of religious things as well. And that's no knock on anybody that I grew up with. That was the best that they knew back then. That's fine. Revelation is always maturing. So God met us 20, 30 years ago when I was a kid. God met us where we were and moved where we were, even though theologically we had a long way to go. It didn't matter. You don't have to be completely, perfectly there. You just got to be willing to shape and move and flex when the Lord comes. And See, that's the issue with a lot of people today. It's not the fact that they haven't made it yet, because we haven't made it yet. That's not the issue. The issue is when the Lord comes in to take them to the next step and it doesn't fit within, let's say, the denominational belief system, they say no. That's the issue. It's not that you're not there yet. It's not that you still believe in the rapture or that you still, that's not it. It's that when the Lord comes in to say, can I fix this a little bit, we say no. That's the problem. But anyway, we grew up being taught that progress is what got you to righteousness, that death is what got you to wholeness, and that you were actually never really fulfilled. I mean, that's what we were kind of taught. You know what I'm saying? And it took years and years and years and years of us being around a church family that continually reiterated how this works for it to be ingrained in my head that what I do determines who I am in God. There's a, you weren't born with that natural instinct. Like Veda, there's nothing in her guts ever that says, I've got to earn anything. She don't care. You know what I'm saying? That's not natural. It took years for you to become natural and numb to that. It, in fact, so natural and numb that when I begin to teach stuff like this, or back when we begin to talk about the rapture, Lord, it was like heresy. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, no, Bible. Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? But, but, but it's, it's, it takes so long for us to be convinced. But when we're convinced, I mean, it takes an army to get us unconvinced, right? Which is a great thing. That's fine. Do not, this is what he says. This is not the time to pull away and neglect meeting together as some have formed the habit of doing or abandon meeting together. In fact, we should come together even more frequently, eager to encourage and urge each other onward as we anticipate the day dawning. Paul is saying, or the writer of Hebrews is saying, that it is imperative for you to continually be around the family that is pushing you deeper into what is real. 
right? But there's so many distractions. I mean, church isn't even like, the pro- I hate the priority thing, but if you're going to do the priority, church isn't even a priority anymore. It's like way down. You know what I'm saying? It's, I mean, it's like if I got time, I might today, which is why COVID allowed so many people to quietly leave. It's, this allowed a perfect, and I'm not talking about, I'm not anti or for anything. That's not Lord. But three, we, we find that the church is in a place where nobody, like literally no, most people don't care. I'm not talking about here. I'm talking about in America. You know what I'm saying? This is the culture we've created. When Yahweh showed up, to declare righteousness over us a year ago, it was in the middle of people fleeing from the church because of, because of COVID, mostly. Why? Because this takes guts to say, this might not look significant, but this is extremely significant. So when we get together, on, let me just, on Tuesday nights, you could come in and say, well, brother, there's 10 people here. Like, what, what are y'all, why? Why y'all do this? But then when you leave on Tuesday night, you leave knowing this is exactly what we need to be doing on a Tuesday night, maybe more. You know what I'm saying? Because when you leave, there is a convincing of who you are that only comes by way of a family that you cannot get any other way. I don't believe you can. And prove it. Okay, awesome. This is what Paul says in Ephesians, and we read this a few weeks ago, but let me just read this. Ephesians 3.10 says this. His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God be made known. What is the manifold wisdom of God? Knowing who God is, which is love and light and righteousness, and who we are, which is love and light and righteousness and whole and fulfilled and progressing. And, but that, that only comes when you and I remove the outside voice of earning it that is constantly being spoken over us. And where is the place, or where should be the place, that you don't have to earn it anymore? It's not in the world. It's not in your job. It's in the church. So the only way you're going to be convinced or I'm going to be convinced that there's nothing more you have to do is to continually be in an environment that reminds you there's nothing more that you have to do. You know what I'm saying? Let me say it like this. Social media has caused, um, and I go back, the reason I've been back on it for a while is because I'm about to come out with a book. And if I don't tell people about it, what's the point of writing a book? So, um, so, and once that book's out, I'm going to probably come back off of it. Because what I've noticed is, is you can get on here and you can spend three seconds and suddenly you start questioning who you are, questioning what you dress like, questioning who you're around, questioning who you're taking pictures with to make other people think you're cooler than you really are. All of that from looking at your phone on social media that, by the way, is not real. Nothing you see on social media is even real. 
pastors, there's a reason pastors don't post on their social media, primarily of them being at home with their kids. You know what they post on social media? Their messages with a cool beat behind it and a cool design around it. And I don't care what anybody's got to teach if they're not a dad. But you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? I, so so we, we, what we have to do is we have to bring back an honor for the house and the family of God because the Lord is hiding wisdom in plain sight in the church. The Lord has hidden gold and pearls and nuggets and revelation and understanding and ideas about who we are and how whole we are and how fulfilled. He's hiding that in the church. And if we're never in the church, and I'm not talking about online. That's, this isn't in the church. You know what I'm saying? I say that. I know a lot of y'all watch online. I, but this, this isn't in the church. But to be here and to lock eyes with people that are walking through the same stuff you're walking through so that I can be convinced that how, how righteous he says I am is actually how righteous I am. So Tuesday night when we get together and I hear like Angela share her testimony on Tuesday night, her sharing that testimony might have seemed like absolutely nothing to anybody else. But when I heard that testimony, it was a reminder that it doesn't matter how deep in the delusion of brokenness that we get, he's right there to pull us back out. And I wouldn't have gotten that had I not heard. You, you see what I'm saying? So, and this is not me saying, like, you know, this is not me being legalistic. I, but it, I don't have to be legalistic to tell my family to show up to Thanksgiving dinner. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't say, like, hey, just so y'all know, you're not considered in the family anymore if you don't show up to Thanksgiving dinner. We don't have to do that. Why? Because everybody wants to come to Thanksgiving dinner. Everybody wants to come to Easter dinner, or at least in my family, I don't know about y'all's, but like, you know what I'm saying? Everybody wants to be there, and because they want to be there, it's life-giving. So yesterday, my parents came over, and we threw water balloons at each other for an hour, my family, you know what I mean? We just threw water balloons at each other. That was life-giving to me, not because of any great, deep conversation we had, but just simply by being around a family that I know I don't have to pretend around any of these people. I could just be me. Now, luckily, I'm at the point now where I'm just me anywhere. You know what I mean? And y'all can just take it and leave it. However, there's something about being around a family where you don't, like at your work, you have to be a certain person in order to succeed at your work. And typically, that's not the person who you really are. Hopefully, you have a job where you can be who you really But most of the time, it's like the fake version of you plus a little bit of who you are. You know what I'm saying? That's the way you work it up. So at your job, you can't be like that. Sometimes even around your family, you feel like you can't be like that. You know what I mean? But when you come into the house of God, suddenly you can take a deep breath and say, I'm home. I don't have to pretend. I don't have to put on a mask. I don't have to act like I'm better than I really am. I can come in this place and find rest and permission to be whole. So why is the church important? The church is important because the Lord calls his bride the church. He calls us different parts of the body of his bride, right? But he calls his bride the church. So you are the bride of God because of your connection to his bride, the church. 
You know what I'm saying? Y'all good? Y'all good? So what does that say about people that aren't connected to the church? Is they're not the bride? No. They're just living like somebody who is sleeping around with other people when they're really designed to be the bride. This is, this, see, this is where we're going to transition soon. Is we're going to transition from a, not away from, this is deeper, but we're, we're going to transition from a continual reiteration of who we are to a continual reiteration of who we are that leads to something. For a year, all we've talked about is, this is who you are, this is who you are, this is who you are, this is who God is, this is who you are. But there is a life to the full that comes after you're convinced of who you are that very few of us have even come close to tapping into. And that's the next stage. The next stage is not just us walking around saying, I know who I am, praise God. No, the next stage is, I know who I am, therefore I have the authority to flood the earth with a kingdom that I have now been convinced that is within me and within everybody else. And, and again, that happens in, in the church. So why should you deal with your money correctly? Why should you not go out and get $100,000 into debt unless you're buying a house? And even then, hopefully you got a good down payment. Why, right? But why should you not do this stuff? Because you know who you are. You see what I'm saying? Why, why should you make sure that you find a spouse? And luckily you guys are, are pretty good at this. But the ones of you that have, why should you find a spouse that has these qualities and has this and has this and has this and things like this? Why should you do that? Because you know who you are and you're not going to join with something that is completely whole, just like you are, but lives like they're absolutely broken. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Why should you be an amazing employee at your job? Because you know who you are, and your wholeness and how you live out your wholeness is going to speak to everybody else around you sometimes without you even saying a word. You know what I mean? What does it say when you go to work and you just complain all day long? Like, man, I hate, I hate this job. I can't wait to get somewhere else. I can't wait to be somewhere better. What does that say? That says you're absolutely broken. And who wants to be broken? No one. So that's why sometimes when you sit around someone like, hey, have y'all ever been to church before? I'd love to invite you to my church. They're thinking, they probably would never say this, if your church produced that, no thank you. You know what I'm saying? However, if you walk into a job that everybody else hates and suddenly you have happy fulfillment where none of them have happy fulfillment, then you sit down with them and talk, talk to them about Jesus and your life has already spoken most of what you're going to say to them. So then you sit down with them and you say, let me tell you about my church. And they're like, my Lord, if that's where you're getting this, I'll be there. Or what, you know, you know what I mean? So what I want you to do today, Matt, you can come up here. I know it's 1140. My Lord, what is happening to us? Don't worry. Next week I'll make up for it twice. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm just learning when the Lord says no. But this is, this is or stop. But this is huge stuff. Um, what, we're, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, but what I really want you to do is that in, in uh, Hebrews, in Romans 4, when Paul is speaking over Abraham's faith and how he believed the word of the Lord, even though it seemed impossible, against all odds, when it looked hopeless, Abraham believed the promise and expected God to fulfill it. 
and expected God to fulfill it. His faith was so strong that it could not be undermined by the fact that he and Sarah were incapable of conceiving a child. Here's, here's what I want you to do. I, I have and we have major dreams for what the Lord is going to do in the earth. Major dreams. And this place is going to pay, play a major part in those major dreams. What I need you to do is I need you and I both to make a renewed commitment to the family of God. Renewed commitment to you being connected to the place that when you show up, there's a group of people around you that says, you are whole, you are fulfilled, and you are making progress. That when we show up, if I'm walking through it or you're walking through it, you know the one place that I need to be is the place where we're going to walk through it together and make it on the other side with each other. I want, I want you to make a commitment today. And if you can't, no big deal. I'll do this by myself. I would do it. I've done it actually by myself in the beginning. But me and Matt. But I want this, this play, this is not just a priority. This is life. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is not just like, all right, brother, if I can make it, I'll make it, I'll make it. I'll, I hope I can be there on Sunday, but I got the lake calling me. Or whatever. You know, no, 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 no. This is, you either get to the place where you're reminded of your wholeness or, or go find somewhere that's going to teach you a really good, you know, solid message about hope and love and peace and how you can be whatever you want to be and never, ever have to face the fact that you believe you're broken even though you're whole. You know what I mean? But as for me and my house, so here's what I, here's what I read this week, and I mentioned this to Paul earlier. Uh, in Acts 16, in Acts 16, I think it's verse 3. Let me just make sure I'm telling you this right. <clears throat> yes. Let me check this out. Paul and Silas came to the city of Derbe, Derbe and then went on to Lystra, the hometown of a believer named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish follower of Jesus, but his father was not a Jew. Timothy was well-known and highly respected among all the believers of Lystra and Iconium. Paul recognized God's favor on Timothy's life and wanted him to accompany them in ministry. But Paul had Timothy circumcised first because he had the significant, or excuse me, because of the significant Jewish community in the region and everyone knew Timothy's father wasn't a Jew. So Timothy... Very famous guy. When he got joined to Paul, the first thing Paul does is take a knife to his flesh. Amen. Right? You know what I'm saying? When Timothy gets joined to Paul, the first thing that Paul does is take a knife to his flesh. That is what it looks like to be around a family of God. That when I show up, if I'm living in anything but this, 
the flesh starts to be cut out. It's not comfortable. It sometimes doesn't feel good. For a long time, it might not feel good. But you know it's out of love that gets you into a place where you can not only believe you're the righteousness and wholeness of God, but that you can tell other people because of how you live your life that they are the righteousness and wholeness of God. You know, when you come, it, you don't have to come in here every week and leave feeling like, man, that was, I feel so good about that. I hope you do. But it's okay too if we leave a Tuesday night and a Sunday and you leave and say, man, I, ah, that kind of hurt a little bit. You know what I'm saying? But, but that's the family. That's where the commitment comes in and says, I'm not moving. My feelings aren't going to get hurt by people. My feelings aren't going to get hurt by what anybody says. I'm not going to be offended by what people say. I'm going to lift up the cause of other people, right? If somebody, Angela's really passionate about prayer at 8.30 in the morning. Obviously, not everybody is as passionate about prayer as Angela is. You know what I'm saying? So, so we could either, and we could either say, like, Angela... Do your thing, like, I'm going to sleep in. Or we could say there's somebody in the family that has had a burden of prayer on their life. And even if I don't feel that burden because I'm in the family, I'm going to show up and support that burden. You know what I'm saying? That's a little bit of the knife, I know. You know, but like, well, brother, you don't, you don't understand. I need my sleep. Eight thirty. Listen, 830 is lunchtime for us. My Lord, I, at, by 8.30, we've been up 10 hours. No, I'm just kidding. But it feels like it sometimes. 8.30, like 8.30 is not early. 8.30 is not early. And if you're older than 20, really 8.30 is not early. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. Rachel shows up at 9 o'clock because she feels a burden. And this is not a knock or anything, but she feels a burden to have this community around breakfast. And it's amazing. It's amazing. Rachel, we, we pay for a little bit of it, but Rachel pays for a lot of it out of her own pocket. You know what I'm saying? And we do a great job of this, but like, man, we, we need to, when Rachel said, I feel this burden on my life, even if you don't like breakfast, you don't have to like breakfast. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't have to. But like, we can still show up and say, if there's a burden on somebody in the family's life, you know what we're going to do? We're going to support it and make her feel like she is killing it. The first few years of church, when we started this church, if I had three people in my life for those first two years, three people in my life, that every week their job was to say, you're doing exactly what the Lord called you to do. You might not see it, but you're doing good. If I had three people, that would have caused a lot of heartache that I walked through to not be there, but I didn't have that. That's not, I'm not saying that like against anybody. That's not, you know, we're, we were a new church. Before, for the first couple of years, it was me a vision, Matt driving from Greenville because he was my brother and about three or four other people in a really big theater. We had my wife and my daughter, my wife and Veda were our, were our number one members of our church. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? For years. And, but I'm telling you, there's something crazy that begins to happen when we start, and I hate using this word because it's, it's kind of a cliche word today, rallying around each other. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's, there's something really, really big. That's why I get up here and like when Hannah releases a podcast, I, I'm sharing that thing. You know why? Because Hannah might feel like that podcast is, I don't know if she does, might feel like that is completely insignificant. 
but it is extremely significant. What her podcast says to the world is that Columbia matters. Do you know, you know what I'm saying? And like, we need to blow, we need to be the biggest supporters of that. Kyle just started a business. I know they're online today because they just had a baby. You should be. Don't bring your baby here. Um, well, bring him here next week, you know, whatever. But, but please, don't get that baby sick. But Kyle just started an auto detailing business. I just want to encourage you guys Let's like let's share that thing. Let's you know what I'm saying? I'm I'm again, I'm not trying to be legalistic. What I'm trying to say is is there is something in the family that begins to happen when we start to mesh and become one and lift each other up and carry each other's burdens and put our arms around each other's backs when we begin to walk forward. That's how the kingdom is accomplished in the earth. But you listen, you have to be present. We, like, we have to be present for this to take place. So, let me pray, let me pray, let me pray, and then we'll be done. Lord, I honor you for this day. I believe you're growing us up a little bit in this season. I feel this shift where, where we've been on milk for a long time, and we're starting to transition to some solid food. But Lord, I, I pray that you would, in, in this season, that you would, you would marinate us in the revelation of who we are, in the revelation of our wholeness, in the revelation of, of the fact that we have happy fulfillment. And I pray that as that begins to marinate within, that this family, this church, will begin to grow so tight-knit that no one here feels alone, that no one here feels by themselves, that no one here is afraid to be themselves, that no one here is afraid to release the sound and the ideas and the dreams and the visions and the creativity that they have within themselves because this is such a safe place to be. That's the dream I have. I dream of having a church one day that looks like this. That every single person within a 30-mile radius of downtown Columbia knows if there is one place on earth where I can show up and know for a fact I've encountered the real, authentic face and presence of God in a family that will not judge me for what I look like or what I've done is Dream Church in Columbia. Typically in the past, you either have a church that's welcoming to everybody but has no presence or a church that has a lot of presence and isn't welcoming to anybody. We don't have a lot of examples of both. A church that is extremely deep in what we know is real and true and at the same time is extremely welcoming to those who come in on the surface, if you want to use that language. But that's who you're raising us up to be. I see you preparing an army of people who are so convinced of the goodness of God that when you begin to explode in the earth like you're doing in this place, we are able and ready to steward that move of the Spirit that is not going to be another awakening. It's going to be a complete transformation of the cosmos that come by way of sons and daughters being manifest in the earth. 
So Yahweh, we love you and honor you in this place. In your name, amen.